0: We are in a portion in the book of Matthew that is emphasizing, revealing that Jesus is the Son of God. We noted that rather dramatic proclamation by Peter when Jesus said, Who do people say that I am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We've been emphasizing that Peter was right when he said that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, but there was so much more for Peter to learn as to what that really meant, that Jesus was the Son of God. And so there were a number of different circumstances, all of which were intended to help Peter better understand the significance of Jesus being the Son of God. Today, the situation is the paying of the temple tax. And from it, Jesus uses the occasion of paying the temple tax to teach Peter more of what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. And then ultimately, of course, for us to understand more of what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. We begin by looking at the background of the temple tax in verse 24. It says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter. It is important to understand that this two drachma tax was not a civil tax by civil authorities. This was not a Roman tax. This was a Jewish tax. It came to be known as the temple Tax. The Bible speaks elsewhere of our responsibility to human governments and paying of taxes. This passage is not addressing that. This passage is addressing the temple tax, a religious tax. It was a tax that originated in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 30 verse 11, it reads as follows. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel... Then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them. There shall be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 gerahs. half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So the temple tax had two purposes. Its first and primary purpose was to maintain the tabernacle and then later the temple along with the sacrificial system, so that atonement could be made for sin. It was a tax that was used to achieve the service at, first of all, the tabernacle, and then later, the temple. Secondly, it was used to teach that everyone was of equal value before the Lord. They had both equal worth and equal need. In Exodus 30, 15, it says, The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less. The rich man's soul was not worth more than the poor man's soul. The poor man's soul was not worth less than the rich man's soul. And neither of them, the rich man or the poor man, were sufficient in and of themselves. Each had to give a half a shekel, and each was to give precisely that a half a shekel. that tax continued on to the day of Nehemiah. we read in Nehemiah 10:32. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the noon moon, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. So it was a tax to pay for all of the service of the temple. That tax existed into the day that Jesus ministered. It was that tax that they came to collect. So with that as a background, the first thing we note, Is the tax collectors came to Peter inquiring whether or not Jesus would pay the temple tax? Verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? The question is actually asked in such a way that the tax collectors are expecting that Jesus will pay. The NIV application commentary says this, and I quote, In the Greek, the grammatical structure of the question indicates that these temple tax agents are attempting to elicit an affirmative response. He does pay the tax, doesn't he, is the way in which they translate it. The idea is, Jesus is going to pay this tax, isn't he? Of course he's going to pay the tax. And Peter's response is just that. Jesus will pay the temple tax. Verse 25, he said, yes. Yes, he will. How does Peter know that Jesus will pay the temple tax? Well, one of two ways. Either from Jesus' devotion to the temple and his commitment to the law of God. He had told his disciples, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Or, from the past experience, They, having been with Jesus for three years now, knowing that it was Jesus' custom to pay the temple tax. He always did. The only thing that matters at this point is that Peter is right. Jesus is going to pay the temple tax. However, Peter does not understand why it is that Jesus does pay the temple tax, which brings us to the second point. Jesus conveys to Peter that he pays the temple tax Because he wants to, not because he has to. Jesus now initiates a dialogue with Peter. Notice verse 25. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, The scripture is making it clear that Jesus is the first one to speak after Peter comes into the house. And it is Jesus' intention to address this issue of paying the temple tax. He wants Peter to understand why it is he pays the tax. And so he asks him a question. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from their others? So he begins by using an illustration that Simon would be well aware of. What about kings that you know? What about these governments that we are under? Who pays tax? Is it the king's family that pays the tax? Or is it the subjects that pay the tax? Well, the answer is, well, it's the subjects that pay the tax, not the king's family. Not the king's family. Notice... The response. Jesus wants Peter to understand that Jesus is under no obligation to pay the temple tax. This, again, is unique insight given only to Peter. Matthew 17, 26. And what he had said from others, Jesus said to him, then are the sons free. This is a dialogue that's taking place simply between Peter and Jesus. Nobody else is privy to this conversation. It is only recorded in the book of Matthew, found nowhere else in the scripture. This rather curious conversation. What is meant when Jesus says in verse 26 that the sons are free? Remember that Peter had just recently declared that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was the Son of God. In this analogy, the king is God the Father. The tax is a tax that belongs to God. It's a temple tax. Well, What does that mean for Jesus? If Jesus is the son of God, then he's free from the tax because king's families don't pay tax. That's the analogy. But now we need to look at it a little more deeply than that. The temple tax is being used for God's house. The temple is Jesus' father's house. For example, Luke 249, when Jesus first well not the first time, but he's 12 years old and he goes up to the temple. And if you remember, the family leaves and he's still there talking to the rabbis. And they come looking for him and they finally find him talking to the rabbis and he said this to them, Luke 249. He said to them, "Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house?" He refers to the temple as not just God's house, but his Father's house, for he is the Son of God. The temple, however, is not only his Father's house, but Jesus' own house as well. The temple exists to serve him, not for him to serve the temple. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, referring to the Christ. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, referring to the Christ. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He is coming to his temple. This is Christ's temple. Not only that, but Jesus is greater than the temple. Matthew 12, verse 6. I tell you, something greater then the temple is here. And not only is Jesus greater than the temple, but Jesus will replace the temple. John 2.19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus himself will be the offering for sin and will fulfill all the requirements of the sacrificial system. Hebrews 726 to 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above all the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus was under no obligation or duty to pay this tax. He was free. He is the son of God. This existed for him. He didn't exist for the temple. However, the reason that Jesus pays the temple tax is so that Jewish leaders will not have a stumbling block set before them. If Jesus would not have paid the temple tax, the Jewish leaders would have jumped to the wrong conclusion. Notice verse 27. However, not to give offense to them. Not to give offense to them. He's going to pay the tax Because he doesn't want to offend them. That doesn't just mean hurt their feelings. What it means is to put a stumbling block before them. They would have had a difficult time in regarding Jesus as a true teacher of the law of God if he wouldn't have paid the tax. How in the world could he be a teacher of the truth and yet refuse to pay the tax? They wouldn't have gotten it. They wouldn't have accepted that Jesus was the Son of God. So he said, so as not to put a stumbling block before them, I'm going to pay the tax. But he wanted Peter to understand why he was paying the tax. Not to be a stumbling block. It was not because he was obligated to. He was the Son of God. This is one of those implications that Peter needed to understand when he said that Jesus is the Son of God. It meant that everything about the temple served Christ. Served Christ. They did not understand that Jesus was the Son of God. Peter was to come to the understanding that Jesus was the Son of God. While Jesus was not hesitant to to offend the scribes and Pharisees on many other occasions, he was not willing to do so on this occasion. Occasion. Why? Because this was one of those occasions when the Pharisees and scribes were right. This tax should, in every normal instance, have been paid. It was a right expectation. They simply didn't know that Jesus was the Son of God. So it brings us then to the payment of the tax by a supernatural means. Matthew seventeen twenty-seven. However, not to give offense to them, he said, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. A rather curious portion of scripture to be sure. So what are we to learn from this passage? Well, first, we learn of Jesus' sovereignty. Jesus has a special fish prepared, a fish that is a specific fish. He says, go and put a line, a hook in the sea. This is the only place in the whole New Testament in which Peter is fishing with a fish hook. Every other place in the New Testament, Peter is fishing with a net, taking in numerous fish. He is not to collect abundant number of fishes and then look in the mouth of each one until he finds one with a shekel. No, Jesus has a fish specifically prepared. Put your hook in the sea and up is going to come this fish, and it's going to have a shekel in its mouth. We learn that even in the miraculous, there is a human responsibility. There is something that Peter has to do. He has to go and fish and get this coin and then pay the tax. But I would point out to you that the actual fulfillment of the miracle is not recorded. It ends with the command. Notice verse 27. Go to the sea, cast a hook, take the fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. We are missing a statement that says, and Peter went and threw out the line and caught the fish and went and paid the shekel. For the emphasis is not on the fulfillment. The emphasis is on the statement. In other words, we're to learn something more than just about God's sovereignty in this. We're to learn more than just Jesus' power. For it's not the power that is emphasized. It's the freedom from the tax that is emphasized. What this teaches us is a very important Old Testament lesson. Turn with me to Psalm fifty, verse seven. Psalm fifty, verse seven. Psalm fifty, verse seven. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your little folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not have told you. For the world and its fullness are mine. In the Old Testament, God says, you know, these sacrifices that are, that are being offered, you're doing me no favor. You're only giving back to me what is mine. You are not making me rich. You are not enlarging me in any sense. Every offering that you offer, I own. Every sacrifice that you make, I have provided for you. You haven't provided these things. I have provided them for you. Verse 13. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God was displeased with their sacrifices in the Old Testament. The way in which they were given, Jesus declared that God was displeased with the way in which the sacrifices were being offered in the temple. He said, "You have made my father's house a house of, of thieves, a den of iniquity." He took a, uh, <coughs> a uh, ropes and and scourged the people for their sinfulness in the way in driving the money changers from the temple. Jesus was not pleased with the way in which they were offering their sacrifices, but yet in testimony to the reality of the truth of God's word, he continued to pay the temple tax. But he wanted Peter to understand that he was free from this tax. And not only was he free from the tax, but whatever they were going to offer was simply coming from his hand. They didn't understand that, they didn't know his provision. So he teaches Peter that everything on this earth is mine. Just go catch a fish, and in there you're going to find a shekel. And he doesn't even tell Peter, sell the fish. And pay our taxes. But he says in the fish's mouth. You're going to find a shekel. This fish is going to swallow. A shekel. And you're going to find it. And you're going to pay the tax. Jesus. Has sufficiency. To pay the tax. Not only for himself. But Peter as well. Notice verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook. Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Jesus is free from the tax. Peter is not. Jesus is the Son of God. Peter is not. Peter, I'm going to provide for you the payment for the temple tax. I'm free. You're not. But I'm going to provide for you. All of this is a beginning of an unfolding of what it means that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's showing them that he must die and that he will rise again the third day. All still very veiled, all still very discreet, but Jesus saying, I am am going to provide for you what you need in atonement. I am going to pay your price. Little does Peter know what that price really is. Little does he know how the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to cleanse him from all his sin. It's a beginning of the unfolding. An atonement that Jesus will pay in ways in which Peter cannot yet fully comprehend. And Jesus is going to be the replacement for the temple. He is greater than the temple. When Jesus dies, the veil in the temple is rent. The way into the most holy place is now made accessible. In just 40 years from now, the temple is going to be destroyed. Impossible Impossible to offer sacrifices at that temple any longer. Still destroyed today. No temple. Jesus is the replacement of that temple. Here is the first hint that Jesus is going to be the ultimate and final replacement of that temple. I am free. I am free. So what do we learn from this passage? First, that Peter had so much more to learn about Jesus. And so do we. And so do we. Peter is with Jesus for years, witnessing miracles, hearing messages, interaction with the scribes and the Pharisees. And Peter is just learning more and more and more and more. So it is with us. And that is so important to keep in mind. We, we haven't learned it all yet. And we won't in any one given Sunday. And we won't in any one reading the Bible through. You know, it's an ongoing process year in, year out, you're in you're out i am still learning loads about god's word i'm still understanding hidden things hidden in the sense that, that they're a bit obscure but as you reflect upon them you say wow wow look at that look at that it's it's amazing we should recognize that we have need to grow Our life is constantly learning more concerning who Jesus really is. In particular, what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. One practical application for that this morning is for each of us as we come bringing our tithes and our offering. May we all understand when we come bringing our tithes and our offering, we are only giving him what he has first given to us. Confidence. We should not be afraid to offer our tithes and our offering. Saying, well, well you know, I'm going to need this in the future. Or, well, how am I going to provide? It is an act of... Of obedience, recognizing that every good gift comes from above. God provides for us. God provides for us. And when we are giving, we are just simply giving back to Him from what He has already given to us. So it is a time to worship, a time to say, Thank you, God, that I have something to give. Thank you that I have a job. Thank you that I have unemployment. Thank you that I have means by which I can offer this offering to you. Give him praise. Give him thanks. It's a time to reflect on what it means that Jesus has made us acceptable to God the Father. The way in which we worship is so totally different from the Old Testament. I encourage you to read the Bible through in a year. You know, we're not offering goats and bulls. Uh, We don't have a high priest. We don't have incense. We don't have an altar. We don't have any of that stuff. We sit here with no sacrifice whatsoever because We have Jesus as our sacrifice because he died on the cross to pay the penalty of sin. He died. He rose again. He ascended even to the right hand of God the Father. He intercedes as the high priest did. He intercedes for us. We are forgiven through him. He provides everything that we need in our relationship to God. Everything that we need in our relationship to God. This morning, in closing, we are going to sing the hymn, More About Jesus. And it may seem inappropriate uh, to sing it at the end. You would think that I would sing it before we uh, had the message in preparatory Uh, Tell me more about Jesus. But the reason that we are singing it at the end is because there's still more to tell. There's There's still more to learn about who Jesus is. But let me just say to you, Jesus is the Son of God. So what that means is everything belongs to him. He makes us acceptable to God the Father. And we have no reason to fear, for he is able to provide for us, not just financially, but spiritually. When he paid that tax for Peter, it was a statement that he was making Peter acceptable to God the Father. Pastor Brandt.